This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Oh, goodness, what a dreadfully humid day. I may have to rent out the upstairs parlor as a sauna. Janet, you are so lucky to be working down here in the basement where it stays cool. It's a small mercy, Mistress Baker, that's for sure. Are you almost done with the baby's laundry? Almost, Mistress. Little Rosemary's clothes are so wee, I don't want to wring them too much. I might spoil the lace. <laughs> don't trouble yourself too hard. She'll just rub mashed peas on them again tomorrow. I suppose you're right. They are quite lovely little things, though, aren't they? Are you going into town today, Mistress? Only for a few hours. The houseboy is taking care of luncheon. You'll finish laundry and straightening the baby's room by then. Aye, mistress. Straight away. On the morning of July 26, 1924, 22-year-old nanny Janet Smith was going about her usual morning chores of laundry, housekeeping, and helping baby Rosemary Baker. She expected the morning to be boring. Unfortunately, the discovery of her dead body made that morning anything but... This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on the 1924 death of Janet Smith. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. In the 1920s, the Baker family was a well-off family from Vancouver, Canada. 
Frederick Lefebvre Baker, the family's patriarch, owned an importing business that operated in Vancouver, Paris, and London. Doreen Baker, Frederick's wife, gave birth to their first daughter, Rosemary Baker, in November 1922, while they were living in Kensington, England. As Rosemary was their first child, they wanted to make sure she was looked after at all times. You said your name was Janet, is that right? Hi ma'am, Janet Smith. Delighted to make your acquaintance. Likewise. How old did you say you were, Janet? 21 this June, ma'am. And you've had schooling? Aye, ma'am, I've had some. My mom and dad could only afford to send me off to primary school, but I did get a certificate. Wonderful. Have you much experience with children? Loads, ma'am. I've no siblings myself, but I take care of the little ones who can't sit for church services every Sunday. I've taken classes as well. Well, your resume seems sufficient, and you appear to be an upstanding young woman. As you know, my husband runs an importing business, which means that we may travel frequently. I suspect we shall be in Paris before the year's through, and we may even cross the Atlantic after that. Would you be able to accompany us? Uh, I don't mind at all, but... My parents... well... Mm, I understand your trepidation. Fred and I would supply your travel expenses. And of course a room will be provided for you. You would be paid $30 a month, of which any portion could be easily wired to your family back in Lambeth. That's quite generous of you, ma'am. It's silly of me, but I've always wanted to see Paris. It's not silly at all. And it could be yours to see in a few short months. Janet began working for the Bakers in January, and by April of 1923, she had indeed moved with them to Paris. After a few months in France, Fred's business uprooted the family again, this time moving to a small town called Shaughnessy in what is today central Vancouver. When Janet and the Bakers settled in Shaughnessy in October 1923, the town wasn't yet a part of Vancouver, but rather a loosely amalgamated set of neighborhoods called the Point Grey District. The family moved into a house owned by Fred's brother, Richard, who was vacationing overseas at the time. The house itself, 3851 Osler Avenue, was located in a relatively quiet but extremely affluent part of town. When the weather was nice, Janet was able to take Rosemary out for walks in nearby Stanley Park. There, she could meet with other local nannies to trade gossip and stories about their charges. Oh, Rosie may look cute now, but just this morning, she nearly bit my hand as I was feeding her stewed carrots. Isn't that right, wee one? Look at that. She knows exactly what she's doing, doesn't she? Janet was quick to make friends in Shaughnessy, and she also had her fair share of male admirers. She was friendly and flirtatious with most of them, and would regularly write about the men that she met in her diary. As I write this, I'm thinking over and over again about what I said to the man with the handsome blue eyes this evening. Perhaps it was that I was so taken with him. I kept forgetting how I mean to return to England once I leave the baker's employ. I simply cannot have a romantic entanglement in Shaughnessy. He will think that I've led him on. I suppose I will always play with fire. Oh, I expect that is what the fortune teller meant when she said, I have the girdle of Venus. Janet also got plenty of attention from Wong Foon Singh, a Chinese immigrant and her co-worker at the Baker residence. He was only a few years older than Janet, 
and although he wasn't quite fluent in English, the two apparently got along well. He even once gave her a silk nightdress that she wrote about in her diary. All in all, it seemed like Janet was adjusting nicely to her new home. Shaughnessy was a peaceful place, a safe place, the perfect place to raise a family. So it was even more shocking when Janet met her violent end just eight months after she arrived in town. Since there were no apparent eyewitnesses to Janet's death on the morning of July 26, 1924, we have to piece together the story from the testimony of Wong Foon Singh. Besides baby Rosemary, Singh was the only other person in the house at 3851 Osler that morning. Fred Baker had already gone to work, and Doreen was out running errands while Singh and Janet watched the house. By this point, Janet had been working for the affluent Baker family for more than a year and a half and had more than enough work to keep her busy while her employers left for the afternoon. Without the Baker's home, the house was even quieter than usual. Down the street, the faint sound of hammering could be heard as workers rushed to fill empty lots with opulent houses before the fall rain set in. Birds still sang on the branches of the trees at the edges of the golf course. As it was still midsummer, many families in the exclusive neighborhood were still on vacation, so the streets were empty. There was nothing to disturb little Rosemary from her nap as Janet finished with the ironing. Upstairs in the kitchen, the Chinese houseboy was peeling potatoes for the family's lunch. He enjoyed the peace of the morning when he had a clear job to do and didn't have to decipher another new task. His English was decent but still not perfect, and the bakers talked a little too quickly when they wanted something done. The potatoes were almost ready to drop into the pot when he heard it. A bang that reverberated throughout the sleepy neighborhood. At first, he thought a car had backfired. But no, the streets were empty. In a far-off room on the first floor, the baby was awake. The houseboy wasn't good with babies. Rosemary was Janet's responsibility. He rushed to the downstairs laundry room to fetch the nanny to soothe the crying child. But what he saw there stopped him dead in his tracks. Next to the ironing board lay the cooling body of Janet Smith, a bullet wound through her forehead and a revolver next to her outstretched hand. Her pince-nez glasses had fallen next to her body, now smudged with the same thick red blood that pooled in her blonde hair. Singh screamed for her to wake up, shaking her shoulders as he knelt in her blood, but it was no use. Janet was dead. By the time he thought to call Mr. Baker, his hands and apron were covered in her blood. Fred Baker returned to the grisly sight of his houseboy covered in blood, his daughter screaming from the nursery, and a dead body in his basement. He called the local police immediately, and Point Grey Constable James Green was the first on the scene about a half an hour after the body was first discovered. You say this gun belongs to you, Mr. Baker? Yes, but I haven't kept it on me since we moved into this house. Shaughnessy is less of a troubling place than Kensington, you see. Much quieter. As I had no need for it, I had it put in a haversack on a peg in the hall and kept it out of sight and mind. And you kept it loaded? Yes, but if I recall, it had jammed. It appears to be jammed now. It was never a very reliable piece of metal after the war. Say, perhaps Janet had been trying to clear the jam and, in her inexperience, caused it to go off in her direction instead? 
She was the curious sort? More than the suicidal sort, in my estimation. Well, it's not impossible. It does look like quite the regrettable self-inflicted death. Unless the coroner has anything else to add, I'd say this is an open and shut case. A tragic accident. So sorry for your loss, sir. Thank you, Constable. Of course, the next step would be to send Janet's body off for an official autopsy, to see if her gunshot was really self-inflicted or if her wound suggested foul play. But this is where the case gets complicated. Instead of going to the coroner's office, Janet's body was sent straight to the undertaker for embalming. At its most innocent, this move may have been a miscommunication. The undertaker did as he had been told, stripping the bloodied clothes off Janet's body and preparing her for burial. In doing so, the most crucial evidence in Janet's case was destroyed. Not only was her body cleaned of all blood, her temple wound was filled with putty and her bloodstream was filled with embalming chemicals. The clothes she died in were tossed into a heap on the floor where the blood was left to seep through the fabric. She was preserved, perfumed, and posed. Perfect for a burial, useless for a coroner. The case was already off to a bad start. And it was only about to get worse. We'll return with how Shaughnessy reacted to Janet's death after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And now, back to the story. After her supposed suicide on July 26, 1924, news of Janet's death quickly spread. Her two best friends in Shaughnessy, Sissy Jones and Jean Haddo, realized something must be wrong when Janet didn't meet them in the park the next afternoon. Not like Janet to be late, is it? Perhaps the baby's sick. Oh, that would be a shame. Nothing better for a sick baby than fresh air, I say. You just wanted to trade gossip with her. Ah, perhaps I did. (laughs) But if it's all the same, we might walk the prams down to Osler Avenue this morning, just to check up. The three women were all local nursemaids and usually met in the nearby park with their respective charges. Janet had always been punctual, so it was strange when she and Rosemary failed to show up for their walk. When Sissy and Jean investigated further, they found out that the truth was worse than they could have ever imagined. Suicide. I'm afraid so. It can't be. Our Janet? No, 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 no. This this isn't like her at all. I saw her just a few days ago in perfect spirits. It appears to have been an accident. I'm sorry, ladies, but I fear I have only myself to blame. 
You see, it was my own revolver she was killed with. We believe she found it carelessly left out and have been inspecting it before it accidentally discharged. But she never touched a gun in her life. That may be why her encounter with mine was so lethal. She would have had no notion of how to properly handle it. I can't believe it. Janet was always so careful. Oh, and what of her family in Lambeth? Have they been informed? I sent them a telegram only last night. I've no return message from them yet. Oh, I regret that as well. Taking her so far from family. Don't be so hard on yourself, sir. It isn't your fault Janet died. It isn't your fault at all. After receiving the news of their friend's death from the Bakers, Sissy and Jean were in a state of shock and disbelief. Not only had Janet died so suddenly, the way she had died seemed strange and completely out of character. It just didn't seem like it could have been an accident. Sissy, in particular, didn't believe Janet's death had been a suicide. She believed she knew the real culprit behind her friend's death and she would do everything she could to bring him to justice. Still, she knew that if she brought her theory of the real killer straight to the Point Grey police, no one would believe her. She was just one woman, after all. She needed backup. And she knew exactly where she could find it. Janet Smith's friend, Sissy Jones, attended a Presbyterian church in Shaughnessy called Highland Church. Highland Church was led by Reverend Duncan McDougall, who was well known around town for his fiery sermons, distrust of the social elite, and racial bigotry. As a champion of the working class, he appealed to women like Sissy who felt exploited by their superiors. And was not Jesus himself downtrodden by the elite? And was not Jesus himself mocked by the establishment when he brought his teachings to Jerusalem? When our government tells us to open our gates to the labor of foreign lands, we must rebuke them. So must we do as Jesus did and tear down their temples of idolatry and excess to rebuild a better future for the working man. Sissy hoped that she could get McDougal on her side and with him, his congregation at Highland Church in Shaughnessy. Reverend, may I speak to you for a moment? Why, if it isn't Miss Jones. Rare I see you stay until fellowship hours are over. What brings you to me today? I'm afraid it is a matter of mortal importance. I don't suppose you have heard the sorry business of my dear departed friend Janet. She was a fellow nursemaid, you see, working out of the Baker home on Osler Street. The Bakers? It's unlikely you know of them, sir. The Bakers are not of our parish. Catholics, I believe. Hmm. Um, I know, I know. But, but the nursemaid Janet, she was a Scot in nationality and upbringing, just like yourself. A good girl, unfailingly kind and of strikingly moral character. I am afraid it was her well of deep compassion and naivety that led her to her demise. How so, my child? She was not the only servant of the Bakers, you see. They had a houseboy, a Chinese man by the name of Wong. I believe the man to be a dangerous creature with an unhealthy obsession for her. Mm, not uncommon for their kind. Mm, she would tell me day after day how nervous she was around him. For the last three days before her death, she was afraid to go into the kitchen for her meals. 
I told her to go into the kitchen and get something in spite of him, and if he laid a hand on her to pick something up and hit him with it. You're quite the spirited lass to suggest such a thing. That may be so, but she never took my advice. And now she's dead by way of gunshot, and the constabulary of Point Grey has ruled her death a suicide. On my soul, Reverend, it was that houseboy that did it. But why tell me this? Shouldn't you take your concerns to the authorities? With all due respect, the authorities on Earth are not as infallible as authority on High. They will not listen to a young woman's ardent pleas for equity. But you, Reverend, you have the standing and moral authority to get them to change their minds. I could think of no one better to assist me. Please, sir, for the justice of a young Scotswoman. <laughs> you make a convincing case, Miss Jones. Consider it done. With McDougall's help, Sissy's theory reached the ears of Vancouver's United Council of Scottish Societies and Presbyterian church leaders all around the country. In the early weeks of August 1924, shortly after Janet's death, the local papers began to latch on to the Janet Smith story. As talk spread, controversy brewed. Victor Odlum, publisher of the Vancouver Star, was probably the biggest proponent of the theory that Janet's death was not an accident or a suicide, but rather a murder. And like Sissy, he also fingered Wong Foon Singh for the crime. Interestingly enough, he didn't seem to blame Singh in particular for killing Janet. Instead, it was the fault of the bakers for placing a vulnerable young white woman like Janet in the same house as a Chinese man. The death in his retelling was inevitable because an evil foreigner like Singh couldn't help himself. Uh, well, today we know this type of thinking is pure racism. Victor's reporting on the case was convincing to his Vancouver readership. Yet, Victor wasn't just a reporter cooking up racist theories to try and find justice for a dead woman. He had ulterior motives for focusing on the Bakers. Victor was a political rival of General A.D. McRae, who was a prominent leader in a splinter group of the British Columbia Conservative Party. Without getting too deep into early 20th century Canadian politics, suffice it to say that the two were in opposition during the national election of 1924. And they were far from friends outside of the political circuit. Victor would take any chance he could to smear McRae's name. Even by association, McRae was the father of Blanche Baker, whose husband Richard owned the house where Janet was killed. The fact that McRae had some tenuous connection to the case was just a happy side effect for Victor. Like many reporters of his time, Victor knew that yellow journalism sold papers like nothing else. And he managed to get a lot of unfounded speculation and gossip out of the Janet Smith case. Shaughnessy girl murdered! Reports of the Scotswoman's suicide a Chinese hoax. Could the real killer have been hired by the same hand that rocked the cradle? Find out more on page seven. As the papers grew bolder, the case grew bigger. And more fingers pointed towards Singh. We'll get back to how the suspicion of an entire town affected Singh after the break. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. 
play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, back to the story. In the early weeks of August 1924, shortly after Janet Smith's death, even the police force of Point Grey were swayed by Victor's dishonest publishing. Inspector Forbes Crookshank, head of the Vancouver Division of the British Columbia Provincial Police, was under mounting pressure to reopen the case he had once ruled a suicide. However, instead of using his own men to investigate the crime, Forbes looked outside the law for help. Oscar, thanks for coming. I've heard good things about your PI work. Only the best, I hope. Indeed. I need a man followed, and I need it done discreetly. If people find I'm looking into this... Cheating spouse? Your secret's safe with me. I'm no cuckold, Mr. Robinson. I need you looking into a murder. Follow a Chinese man named Wong Fung Sing, and let me know if he does anything suspicious. I've gotta say, this'll be the first time I've been hired to trail a murder suspect. But no worries, Inspector. You need evidence... I'll find it. I always get results. That's what I like to hear. Forbes hired a private detective named Oscar Robinson to tail sing and dig up anything he had to hide. Why not send an official member of the police force? Forbes likely wanted to distance himself from the case as much as possible. Victor Odlum's smear campaign had effectively blasted every move the police had made. The public pressure had convinced Forbes to investigate the possibility of murder. However, by this point, Janet's death was still officially a suicide, and backtracking on that ruling without substantial evidence would only make the police department look more foolish. He decided to send Oscar Robinson as a third party to keep tabs on Singh, well, that way, if Oscar found Singh was hiding something, Forbes would have a good reason to reopen the case. And if anything went wrong, Forbes could maintain plausible deniability. Oscar was thorough, and he followed Singh wherever Singh went for two whole weeks. Singh mostly traveled to and from the baker's house at 3851 Osler, running errands. However, during his free time, he would visit Vancouver's nearby Chinatown to meet with friends and speak in his native tongue. To Oscar, who didn't speak Chinese, everything Singh said to his friends seemed suspicious. On the night of August 12, 1924, he decided to escalate his investigation. Oscar waited on the corner of Cordova and Corral in Chinatown, where he knew Singh would be meeting with friends. When Singh arrived, Oscar drove up in an unmarked black car and grabbed Singh off the street, forcing him into the car. To Singh, whose grasp of English was mostly work-related, this must have been absolutely terrifying. With two weeks having passed since Janet's death, Singh would have heard about the rumors connecting him to the possible murder of Janet Smith, 
and likely believed he was going to be killed by vigilantes in retaliation for her death. It wasn't a completely irrational fear. Although the Ku Klux Klan was officially declared unwelcome in British Columbia, they had still set up a chapter in Shaughnessy in a rented mansion called Glen Bray. That mansion was only six blocks away from 3851 Osler, so Singh almost certainly would have known about them and felt their presence in Shaughnessy. And if enough fingers were pointed in his direction, Singh would have reason to believe there was a target on his back. Of course, Oscar wasn't planning on killing Singh, but he was still operating outside of the law. Therefore, Oscar couldn't actually take Singh to the police station for questioning. Instead, Singh was beaten and taken to Oscar's detective bureau on Hastings Street. There, he was questioned for several hours about his connection to Janet Smith. Without anyone there to translate, the questioning was almost completely pointless. Even worse, the beatings lasted well into the night. So, did you get him to talk? Well, depends on what you mean by talk. He's speaking plenty of that foreign mumbo-jumbo, but I can't get him to confess in plain English. It's a simple question, detective. Did he kill the girl or didn't he? Yes or no answer. It ain't simple if he doesn't understand the question, Inspector. So beat him until he gets the point. I've already split my knuckles on this guy. I don't know how much more he can take. Truth be told, I don't know how much more I can take either. It's almost three in the morning. Damn it, Oscar. You told me you could get results. Oh, I can get results, all right. Doesn't mean I understand them. Oscar finally relented around three in the morning and let a severely roughed up Singh go. As far as they could tell, his story hadn't changed. He claimed complete innocence. The kidnapping was a bust, but unfortunately for Singh, his ordeal was not over. Not by a long shot. The real investigation into Janet's death had barely begun, and in the public's eyes, Singh was still the prime suspect. Throughout August of 1924, the entire months following Janet's death, the Vancouver Star acted as a loudspeaker for the concerns of Sissy Jones, Reverend McDougall, and the Council of Scottish Societies who believed that Janet Smith's death was not an accidental suicide, but rather a murder. Victor Odlum's constant reporting on the case and the public interest that followed put pressure on Vancouver's Attorney General, Alexander Manson, to reopen the investigation. And the unofficial investigation ordered by Inspector Forbes Crookshank had ended up with Singh beaten to a bloody pulp with no solid leads to show for it. And so, on August 28, 1924, Janet Smith's body was exhumed for an official autopsy. By the time the autopsy took place, Janet had already been embalmed and buried in a cemetery for over a month. A local doctor named G.F. Curtis was the man tasked with performing the autopsy, and he did as best he could to determine the cause of death with what he had. It is currently 9.31 a.m. on Thursday, August 28, 1924. Dr. G.F. Curtis is performing the autopsy at the Shaughnessy City Morgue with Dr. Meyer assisting and Drs. Jones, DeWitt, and Upton witnessing. Victim is Janet Kennedy Smith, female, age at time of death, 22 years and one month. Victim was preserved with embalming chemicals before autopsy could be performed and buried for 30 days before exhumation. Proceeding with the external examination now. Lights, Dr. Meyer? Right away. 
No obvious signs of decay on external body. I will now have Dr. Maya peel back the embalmer's putty that was placed over the head wound. Excellent. It appears to have exposed an entry wound, approximately a centimeter in diameter, slightly above the right eyebrow. No burn marks or gunshot residue are visible around the wound. Although it's possible gunshot residue may have been washed away during the embalming process, burn marks would have been a telltale sign that Janet was shot at close range. The absence of any burn marks implies she was shot from much further away, conflicting with the theory of an accidental suicide. Uh, turn the victim to the side, please. <clears throat> hmm. Back of skull seems to be partially separated from the head, and a hairline fracture is visible on the cranium. The bullet may still be lodged in her brain. Perhaps. Mark it as an area of interest for the internal examination. Well, that was another strange thing about the body. If Janet was shot at close range and the bullet had an exit point, the back of her head wouldn't be nearly as intact as it was found. But then again, if the bullet was still lodged in her brain, why would the back of her skull be partially separated? It looked more like Janet had suffered a blow to the back of the head and a shot through the forehead. Make a note that on the victim's right side are two burn marks of unknown origin. Dr. Curtis, look here. Ah, good eye. A small black smudge is visible on the index finger of the victim's left hand. Even more puzzling than the wounds on Janet's head were the marks on the rest of her body. No investigator was able to determine what had caused those marks. Of course, the black smudge on Janet's left index finger could have been caused at any time during the embalming or the burial process. Perhaps an errant pencil mark from the mortician or some stray grave dirt. But the lividity of burn marks on her side indicated they had happened sometime before her death. She had apparently been ironing right before her death, so it's possible she had dropped the hot iron on herself just after being shot. But the angle of the marks is pretty suspect. It would have taken an unlikely contortion for the iron to fall on her side as she fell straight down. That appears to be all for the first phase of examination. Now on to the internal investigation, which I fear may be hindered by the aforementioned embalming process. Dr. Meyer, my scalpel, please. As Dr. Curtis predicted, the internal examination didn't reveal any additional evidence for the inquest. Janet's embalming was just too thorough. But the case had already been reopened, and the second inquest went forward. This inquest was not to declare a killer or order a second autopsy, it was simply to legally determine whether Janet's death was an accidental suicide or if it could be investigated as a murder. The inquest began on September 4, 1924, five weeks after Janet's death. A man named Malcolm Bruce Jackson had been appointed as the special prosecutor, and it was well known that he was good friends with Alexander Manson, the attorney general. Manson and the public wanted a quick deliberation. On September 10th, the jury was scheduled to publicly convene at 10.20 a.m. to announce the verdict. Although the Vancouver courthouse could seat up to 50 people, a crowd of 500 had gathered outside its doors. Many of them were young women and nursemaids who could relate to Janet's situation, waiting with bated breath to hear what had happened to one of their own. Some even brought the children and packed a lunch, eager to see the inquest to its conclusion. By 10.30 a.m., the crowd was getting rowdy. 
The session had been suspended so that the jury, officials, and gathered reporters could view the body in the morgue and the house at 3851 Osler Street. The gathered crowd was banging on the doors to the courthouse, demanding to be let inside. What do you have to hide in there? Open the door! Let us in! With pressure mounting from the outside, the jury soon reached a decision. We, the jury, find that Janet Smith was willfully murdered in the course of her employment. She was shot through the head with a revolver in the laundry basement of 3851 Osler Avenue. But by whom fired, we have no evidence to show. It was official. Janet Smith had been murdered. Of course, Singh was still the primary suspect. After all, he was the only one in the house with Janet when she was found dead. Well, him and Rosemary Baker, who was a baby. The police hired a translator and pulled Singh in for an official questioning. Singh was finally able to give his full testimony. He had been preparing lunch in the first floor kitchen when he heard what sounded like a car backfiring. He then went downstairs to the laundry room to find Janet already dead. His story didn't leave much room for another murderer. After all, he didn't see anyone else entering or leaving the house around the time of Janet's death. Still, there's the possibility that Singh could have been set up. After all, the fact that there were no powder burns on Janet's face suggests that someone else shot her from further away. But there was also no blood spatter on the walls near Janet's head, suggesting that Janet may have been killed in another location and then moved into the basement. Not to mention, the injuries to the back of her skull looked like she had been struck on the head, in addition to being shot from close range. If that was the case, the bullet wound could have been made post-mortem to cover up Janet's true cause of death. As we mentioned before, another tricky part of the case was the unusual speed of the embalming process, done before an autopsy was even ordered. Perhaps the police force had been paid off or somehow blackmailed to look the other way while crucial evidence was destroyed. Even the fingerprints on the gun supposedly used to kill Janet were useless as evidence. The first officer on the scene had inadvertently destroyed them when he picked up the gun to return it to Fred Baker's possession. It's also possible that the real killer planted Janet's body in the basement, then let off a shot outside to alert Singh to her death. Overnight, the case had gotten infinitely more complex. What was once an accident turned into a malicious slaying. Anyone could have been a suspect, and even the cause of her death was unknown. But even after the case was declared a murder, the drama would only escalate in the town of Shaughnessy. Next week, we'll do our best to gather the remaining puzzle pieces and take a look at the twists and turns that appeared after Janet's death was declared a murder. The story takes some incredible turns as the KKK become involved, and rumors of a drug-fueled orgy at the Osler house begin to spread. We'll discover the ultimate fate of Wong Foon Singh and learn about legislation that was named in Janet's honor. Join us as we try and discover who, or what, really killed Janet Smith. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two. 
You can find many more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Jordan Lyric and stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Rebecca Ahrens-Diamond, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney-Austin, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto.